Um, the question that I'm going to explore in my talk today is whether artificial machines, particularly machines that are intelligent, can have a natural good. And what I mean by that is for intelligent machines to have a good of their own and be the kind of thing that can um, have its own interests and uh, be benefited and harmed in the same way that you might think humans or some other organisms could be benefited or harmed. Um, so when something has its own interests, we think it would be at least a candidate for having moral rights and having its interests taken into consideration. So the notion of natural good that I'm concerned with here is relevant to determining whether something has moral rights because having a natural good can be a basis for granting moral rights to something. Which is not to say that everything that has a natural good will necessarily have moral rights, but it can at least be a start for something to have a claim to having moral rights. Okay, so in the past few decades, artificial intelligence has made an incredible amount of progress. Today's machines can emulate a wide range of human intelligent behaviors. They can do very well in the kind of tasks that we used to think only humans could do. Um, they have powerful learning capabilities um, that gives them an important sense of autonomy and enables them to act in ways that are not designed and determined by us. And all of that has led some authors to speculate and um, explore the idea that maybe if this trend continues, at some point in the future, we would have to grant moral rights to machines. Um, we would have machines that have interests of their own and um, we have to take those interests into consideration in our moral deliberation and thinking. Um, so that, that would mean that we would have moral reasons to treat them nicely and not to be cruel to them and so on. Some of the arguments that have been given for um, granting machines a moral status or moral rights are indirect in the sense that they look at how our treatment of machines and robots affects us and our own moral character. So idea here would, the idea here would be that um, we have to grant some moral protections to our robots because treating them in cruel ways um, desensitizes us um, to cruelty toward people. Alternatively, some authors argue that the moral status of robots can be grounded in the kinds of relationships and bonds that we form with them and the kind of roles that they play in our society, in our social and personal lives. So the idea is again, it's an indirect argument for granting them some protections. Um, the idea is that the structure of our relationships with other things gives rise to norms about how we're supposed to treat them and how we're supposed to conceptualize the other party to the relationship. But these arguments are not based on any ontological claims about um, intrinsic features um, of machines themselves. So they don't answer the question whether machines can have a natural good or their own interests. When it comes to direct arguments about the moral status of machines, the discussion has mostly focused on the possibility that robots would develop sentience uh, which means the capacity for subjective phenomenal experience or the possibility for de de them to develop some kind of other mental capabilities like consciousness or self-awareness. And it has been suggested that 
if intelligent robots at some point develop these capabilities, they should be given a moral status because if they can have painful experiences or they can suffer, that makes them morally significant. But the general agreement seems to be that today's machines don't have these capabilities and they don't have them particularly in the relevant sense. And so the question that we need to answer is often said that it's whether intelligent machines of the future could have sentience, consciousness, or other mental capabilities. However, um, the idea that uh, capability for sentience or consciousness is necessary for having a moral status or having interests is actually contentious. Arguably, non-sentient living things can also have interests of their own. And we can meaningfully speak of things going well or poorly for them. It seems intuitively plausible that watering an oak tree benefits the plant and pouring acid on it harms it. So some environmental ethicists argue that we have to give some weight to the interests of non-sentient organisms or ecosystems or biological species or some biological entities that are non-sentient um, and not just because it's in our interests to preserve them, but also because these biological entities have a moral standing of their own, even though they're not sentient. Another reason you might have for examining the question of the natural good of machines independently of the question of their sentience is that it's not obvious that for entities that do have interests, um, we can reduce these interests to their conscious experiences like pleasure or satisfaction of desires. According to some theories of well-being, the list of things that constitute well-being for us goes beyond pleasurable experiences or desire, desire satisfaction and includes, for example, things like knowledge or achievement. It's in our well-being to acquire these things regardless of how, I feel about, how we feel about that. So it seems at least possible for something to be good for an entity regardless of whether um, they consciously value or desire it. In fact, even if hedonistic views of well-being, which say the only thing that is valuable, the only thing that is good, consists in pleasure, are true about us, machines are constituted very differently from us. So there is no, no reason to think that um, if they were to have interests, those interests would look like ours. It seems that we can at least uh, imagine entities that have a well-being or are full-on persons with moral rights without being sentient or having conscious experiences of any kind. So my aim is to explore the question of whether machines can have a good of their own without necessarily having anything like sentience or consciousness and to do this, I will first look at the case of non-sentient biological entities and try to give an account of their interests and then ask if the same account can apply to the case of intelligent machines, okay? So, as I mentioned earlier, some environmental ethicists claim that certain non-sentient non uh, biological entities have a good of their own. But in order to defend this view, they need to explain how it is that something can be good or bad for, say, an oak tree, even though a tree is not the sort of thing that can subjectively care 
about the states of the world. Although we say things like watering the tree is good for it or pouring acid on it is bad for it, it could be that we're just anthropomorphizing and ascribing arbitrary interests to the tree. To explain why the ascription of interests to non-sentient organisms is not arbitrary or without basis, some environmental ethicists appeal to the fact that living things are goal-directed or teleologically organized. They argue that living things um, have parts and processes that are organized toward some goal, which is normally their survival or reproduction, and their goal-directedness is what provides a basis for evaluating uh, things as good or, good or bad for them. For example, the reason sunlight and water are good for a tree is that they promote the ends of the tree by helping it survive and grow. They serve a function. So authors like Paul Tyler, uh, Paul Tyler and uh, Gary Varner have given an account of the interests of non-sentient organism based on biological teleology or goal-directedness. And this is sometimes called um, the biocentrist position. The main difficulty for the biocentrist account is that it seems to imply that artifacts also have a good of their own because artifacts are also teleologically organized. A car is a goal-directed system uh, that is functionally organized toward the end of transportation. So if teleology can be grounds for ascribing interests, we need to ascribe interests to cars and toasters and just seems very implausible to say that these simple artifacts have a good of their own, they have interests. Even though we're considering the possibility that some machines, maybe with intelligence capabilities, could one day have interests of their own, no one thinks that the simplest artifacts can be genuinely benefited or harmed, uh, but even those simplest artifacts are functionally organized. So biocentrists try to give an account of what makes biological teleology distinctive and different from artifactual teleology. Some of these efforts, um, in my view, are clearly unsuccessful. Um, Gary Warner, for example, argues that organisms are teleological in a different sense because they are products of evolution and natural selection. So he appeals to the etiological account of function to make his argument. According to the etiological account of biological function, the biological function of a trait or a part of a biological system is a contribution for which that particular part or aspect of the system has been evolved by natural selection. To use a classic example of heart, um, the function of a human heart is to pump blood on this account because pumping blood is what historically has contributed to the natural selection of humans with a heart. And so pumping blood is what explains the current presence of human hearts. Varner appeals to this teleological account of biological function, this etiological account of biological function, to argue that biological functions are different from artifactual functions, because artifactual functions do not have a similar etiology of natural selection. However, as many authors have pointed out, drawing the distinction between biological and artifactual teleology on the basis of natural selection would be ad hoc 
it's not clear that natural selection is relevant to the question of whether something has interests at all. Um, besides, the conditions of natural selection can actually be realized for some non-biological entities uh, as well. And these are entities that no one thinks they could have interests of their own. For example, Bedau and Rosenberg have argued that populations of crystals can also be subject to natural selection. So natural selection cannot be the mark of the kind of teleology that can ground interests. An alternative approach is Paul Taylor's response, which I find a lot more promising. And he argues that the difference between um, the teleology of artifacts and organisms is that artifact functions are derivative, whereas biological functions are not. The idea of being derivative here is that in the case of artifacts, the basis for ascribing functions to their parts is something ultimately about us. It's because these entities, these artifactual entities, serve our interests or are intentionally created by us for a specific purpose that we ascribe functions to them and their parts and aspects. So their functions are derivative on our interests and our conception of them. In contrast, biological functions are not derivative of our interests or intentions. We ascribe a function to the roots of an oak tree, not on the basis of the tree serving any interests for us or being created by us, but independently of our existence altogether. This account of the difference between organisms and artifacts is also supported by philosophers of biology who work on the concept of organism in biology. Dan Nicholson, for instance, has argued against what he calls the machine conception of the organism, or the idea that an organism is essentially a machine that is designed and engineered by natural selection. He argues that organisms are fundamentally different from machines precisely because their propulsiveness is a different kind and is intrinsic. This means that they act on their own behalf toward their own ends, um, as opposed to machines which operate toward the ends that are external to them and are ends of their makers or owners or users. So if this distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic or non-derivative and derivative propulsiveness makes sense, we could argue that only non-derivative or intrinsic functions can be grounds for ascribing interests. A derivative functional organization that you might see in a car um, does not imply that there is anything good or bad for the car, whereas the functional organization of a tree does. Now, some authors have rejected the idea that the derivative-non-derivative distinction can actually track the difference between having interests or not having interests. <coughs> John Basil and Ronald Sandler have argued that there are two things you could mean by derivativeness of functions. One is use derivativeness, which is when an entity only exists for our use. And the other is explanation derivativeness, which is when the functional organization of an entity can only be explained by reference to our intentions and ends. Basil and Sandler argue that both of these senses of derivativeness can apply also in the case of organisms with interests. So basically, uh, derivativeness does not 
just exclude the case of artifacts, it also excludes the case of some organisms, which is not desirable. Um, so for example, they argue that an, orga an organism could be created for our use, for, um, or it could be specifically engineered for our use to have traits that we want. Um, in the case of, for instance, synthetic organisms like crops or farm animals that are bred to have specific features and traits that are desirable to us, we would have to say that their teleology is either use derivative or explanation derivative because we created them for our use and we are the explanation why they have those functions. They argue that even in the most straightforward case of a human agent with desires and interests of their own, the teleology of these interests is not necessarily non-derivative because it could be that some other agent influenced them as a child maybe. And that's really the explanation why they chose those goals. Maybe they chose a career path because of someone else's sort of um, saying something about that. But that doesn't mean that they aren't really interested in that career or in those ends. And they can't really benefit from achieving those ends. So Basel and Sandler insist that whether teleology is derivative or non-derivative is actually relevant to the question of interests. However, I think this argument relies on a misinterpretation of what it means for functions to be derivative. In my view, it's not the causal explanation of how an entity is created or designed that determines derivativeness or non-derivativeness. It's rather the explanation of why something has the status of a function or a purpose that makes it derivative or non-derivative. In the case of synthetic organisms that Basil and Sandler talk about, although the causal explanation of why they exist or have the functional organization that they have is something about us, um, the explanation of why those things have their status as functions is independent of us. We would give the heart of a farm animal uh, that's maybe genetically modified, the, the animal is genetically modified to raise um, to our interests, we would give the heart of that um, animal the function of pumping blood, even if it had a different causal history, even if we didn't create it. So our ascription of function to that heart doesn't really presuppose that we had any interest in the matter. In contrast, if, for example, you can assume that we have um, a domestic breed of sheep that is specifically bred to have long wool, um, that wool maybe has a function to serve for us to contribute to our clothing and textile industry, and it will have that function only because of us, and we call it a function just because of the interest it's serving. So this would be actually that we have an artifactual function in an organism, but at the same time, if the wool also serves a function for the organism itself, maybe by keeping it warm, um, that function would, we would ascribe that function independently of us. So in some cases of synthetic organism, we would have organisms that are at the same time artifacts. So some of their functions, some of the functions that we ascribe to their parts might be artifactual functions, but there will still be some of the functions that we ascribe independently of us and our interests. Um, so the idea is that ascription of function always presupposes that there is a benefit in the functioning of the functional item. 
for someone or something. In the case of artifacts, the benefit is ours, so the ascription of function does not presuppose that the artifact itself has any interests. But in contrast, in the case of organisms, there are functions that do not depend on us or presuppose that they have any benefit for us. So the organism itself must be the thing that's the beneficiary. This is why non-derivative functions imply that the entity in question has interests of its own. Okay, I should clarify that my aim here is not to give a reductive account of interests in terms of functions. I'm not claiming that we can recognize derivative and non-derivative functions independently of any assumptions about interests and then use them as a basis for determining what sorts of things have interests. I actually side with authors like McLaughlin and Beda who take a value-based approach to understanding functions. And they basically claim that you can't understand functions independently of interests. You can't give an account of functions that doesn't somehow presuppose some notion of value. Um, because ascription of functions already always requires making assumptions about what constitutes a benefit for something. We always say that the well-functioning of a functional item serves a benefit for someone. Um, however, these assumptions about what constitutes a benefit are often implicit in biological and artifactual function ascriptions that we already accept or find intuitively plausible. And my claim is that by analyzing these function ascriptions, we can reveal the commitments that we already have about what kind of things have interests of their own. Um, there are several attempts at giving a reductive account of non-derivative or distinctively biological functions. And I think these attempts are unsuccessful. So I actually have an argument for why you can't have a reductive and non-evaluative account of functions, uh, which I'm not gonna get into here in too much detail. But we already saw, uh, for example, that the etiological account um, that appeals to now, we saw the etiological account of function, and this account tries to appeal to natural selection to distinguish biological functions from artifactual functions. And we said that there are already some cases outside the domain of biology which has um, sort of that idea of not natural selection is already there as well. There's also the fact that etiological functions are not the only kinds of function ascriptions in biology, and so, Recently, some philosophers of biology have offered other accounts of function, and a prominent one is the organizational account, which specifically tries to give an account of non-derivative um, function ascriptions, and they try to give a reductive account. And so I could get more into why this account is um, not successful in my view, and to say a little bit about it, um, on the organizational account, um, what they say is that what, what is distinctive, what is different about living systems is that they're self-maintaining systems. So their functions are determined based on the contribution of the parts of the system to the self-maintenance of the entire system. So the idea is that uh, because living things are self-maintaining systems, their parts somehow create the conditions for their own <laughs> existence. So take the example of um, heart again. 
uh, the beating of the heart pumps blood, which carries nutrients to the cells and eliminates waste and does a lot of things for the organism to continue maintaining itself. On the other hand, the organism maintains the heart as well. So it's a sort of two-directional relation. And so in this way, the activity of the heart to pump blood actually explains its own existence. So people who defend the organizational view um, argue that uh, this is what grounds the ascription of functions in biological entities because we have a functional organization that is closed and parts of those functional organization make a contribution on the one hand to the whole organization and the organization preserves them. Um, but um, to the extent that this account is reductive and tries to give the criteria for functional ascription in non-evaluative and purely causal terms, um, I don't think that the account successfully identifies what is distinctive about uh, functions because the problem is that um, this kind of structure, causal structure where there is a self-maintaining system, we can see it in the kinds of systems that we don't want to ascribe functions to. And it seems like we, we really do need to presuppose that uh, the system is the kind of system that can have benefits. Uh, so, for instance, Justin Garson has argued that uh, the psychological processes and mechanisms that constitute a panic disorder can have the exact same causal profile of a self-maintaining system like a full organism in that there is going to be an organizationally closed system where the parts, ma parts make a distinct contribution to the persistence of the panic disorder because you know the feelings for example you might have a panic attack and then you become more sensitive to having panic attacks and it sort of contributes to having more and more panic attacks so the cycle sort of maintains itself but we don't want to ascribe a function to the parts of this sort of self-maintaining a self-perpetuating system um, so basically I just wanted to say that I'm gonna side with authors like McLaughlin and Bedaw who defend a value-based approach to defend it, uh, to understanding functions. And uh, I don't think that we can give an account of functions without having a value or interest criterion. But even though my account of functions is non-reductive and already presupposes the notion of interest, I think clarifying the distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic functions can help us engage with questions about um, whether some new kind of entity has interests of their own, whether, for example, intelligent machines have interests of their own. So when we are encountered with an entity that has a functional organization, getting clear on whether function ascriptions are intrinsic or extrinsic will reveal our commitments about interests. And to see whether a function ascription to a part of a system is intrinsic, we should ask whether the truth of the function ascription depends in any way on us or anyone else making the judgment about the function or some judgment about the system. So in the case of intrinsic functions, the truth of the function ascription does not imply that anyone knows about the truth or even thinks about the system or conceptualizes it in any functional way. For example, the roots of an oak tree would have their functions even if we never discovered oak trees, right? But in contrast, the, in the case of extrinsic functions, their truth really implies that someone somewhere conceptualized that thing as an artifact and saw some benefit to it. 
So teleology and the status of the function of artifacts really depends on us or some external party presenting them or representing them in a certain way. Okay, so now if there is a meaningful distinction between the teleology of organisms and artifacts, and if this distinction can potentially give us a theoretical framework for identifying interests, independently of the question of sentience or consciousness, what can we say about the case of artificial machines? We excluded the simplest artifacts, like a toaster, by saying that their teleology is merely derivative, right? We said their teleology depends on us, so they're derivative, they don't have interests. But how about artificially intelligent machines? Does adding AI to a machine change the equation? The new capabilities that come with AI, such as machine learning um, and the, the uh, ability to create autonomous agents, give these intelligent machines a sense of independence from us. They have a sense of autonomy that enables them to act in ways that aren't exactly designed or anticipated by us. So they do have a sense of independence from us. And the question is whether this kind of independence uh, is the right, the relevant notion of independence that would make their teleology intrinsic and give them interests of their own. My answer to the question, though, is that no, it isn't. Intelligence and the other kind of capabilities that AI has um, does not in itself give rise to interests because it does not give rise to intrinsic functions, and I'm going to argue for that. What distinguishes intelligent machines from more traditional artifacts is that they have the ability to go beyond the original design or the solution that is created by the human maker of the machine. So they can find a better solution to a problem that we gave them by changing and improving their performance over time. And because of this, they can solve more difficult problems and even problems that we ourselves don't know how to solve. For example, um, the sort of connectionist mechanism that we see in deep learning and neural networks uh, enables these systems to find patterns in unstructured data. These algorithms create their own model of the problem domain and gradually improve their model over time. And the way they do this is that they have an architecture consisting of a number of nodes and there are connections between these nodes and each of the nodes represents a mathematical function and so um, they take an input value, process it and output it to other nodes and so on. And so these parameters of the system and the weight that is assigned on each input, all of these numbers, change over time as the system trains in huge amounts of data. So it's plausible that as the system trains and improves itself, the parts and nodes and connections, uh, which are mechanisms that enable the system to solve the problem for us, acquire new functions. In fact, these functions might be opaque to us. It might not be known to us what one of these nodes in the network is doing, and it's a common sort of discussed issue about neural networks and deep learning. We might not be able to make sense of how the system is interpreting the data and what features of the data it's considering as significant. 
Uh, because, for example, if the data is unstructured, uh, you can imagine, for example, if it's stored images that are represented by matrices of RGB value for the pixels, then the system is performing complex mathematical functions on uh, the, these numerical values. And the overall output of the system might be something that would make sense to us, um, like whether the input was a picture of a cat. But the more local functions of the specific nodes will probably not make sense to us. So some nodes might detect whether there is a sharp edge, a corner in the top of the picture, and so on, but we wouldn't know. So the system is giving rise to new functions, and these functions can be unknown to us. But is the status of these functions as functions um, independent of us in the same way that we talk about in the case of organisms? I want to argue that the status of these functions and functions uh, still depends on what the machine overall is doing for us, right? So it, it's not a case of intrinsic functions. It's still extrinsic or derivative. Um, because as we saw with the example of recognizing the image of the cat, uh, what the system as a whole is doing is something for us, is something that we asked it to do. And this ultimate function um, has its functional status because of us, uh, because of how we conceptualize the system and how we incorporated this system or algorithm in our practices, how we used it, and so on. So even these new functions that are created by the machine don't have the right kind of independence from us to be intrinsic functions. And this is why I don't think intelligence on its own creates intrinsic functions or interests. What intelligence does is that it creates better means and reasoning. When AI is at its best, it's very good at taking the necessary steps to performing a task that is given and um, solving it in a fast and efficient manner. And this involves the ability to plan ahead or predict the utility that is gained from each of the steps and et cetera. So what AI needs to do and what AI is good at doing is instrumental reasoning. And there is no reason to think that getting better and better at instrumental reasoning would generate new intrinsic ends and genuine intrinsic interests. In fact, what is interesting is that the more instrumentally rational a system is, the less tempting it is for us to see it as anything other than a mere machine. If the overall behavior of an intelligent system can be understood simply in terms of trying to achieve an end that we define for the system, we'll be less likely to wonder if the system has some other ends or interests that it has independently of us. It's when a machine shows tendencies and behaviors that aren't simply in service of the end or function that we gave it by design that we start wondering whether, whether uh, maybe it has interests of its own. Of course, it's possible, in the sense of being logically conceivable, that an intelligent machine would somehow come to life and be genuinely in invested in the extrinsic uh, derivative functions that it's pursuing. And if this happens, the performance of the system which was originally an extrinsic function for the machine, might simultaneously become an intrinsic function. Um, and we might never know, actually. But the point that I'm trying to make is that 
this possibility is not any higher or more plausible in the case of intelligent machine than it is in the case of simplest artifacts. Because intelligence doesn't add any, doesn't create any intrinsic value by its own. It just gets better and better instrumental reasoning. So to sum up, I have looked at the question of natural goods or interests independently of the question of sentience and consciousness. And I've argued that even if it turns out that non-sentient organisms can also have their own interests, this doesn't lend any plausibility to the idea that artificially intelligent machines would one day have interests of their own. Um, because the case of machines is different from the case of organisms. And although it's not logically inconceivable or impossible for interests to emerge in machines, they're being intelligent and capabilities that get people excited about talking about this possibility, like machine learning, uh, do not add any plausibility to this idea. Thank you. <laughs>